This is Psych Bates. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Psych Debates. We're so excited about having you guys back on for this episode. It's Dr. Monty Altahami and Dr. Jonathan Namias. Hello, good to be here. We have another exciting episode and I think it's fair to say, Jonathan, this is this is one of those episodes where it gets pretty debating, no? <laughs> it's yes, absolutely. This is one of the debatier of our podcasts and and I think it is, uh, for that reason, uh, a very, um, it, it's certainly one that I could not get distracted in. It's it's one that I had to continue paying attention Must to. Must pay attention. Right, yes, right. Absolutely. Like I could feel my heartbeat as I was talking to, to Dr. Gami with this one. This is where the debates and psych debates comes from. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we, we have Dr. Nasir Gami with us today and we are absolutely honored to have him on and honestly Jonathan this has been one of the more exciting episodes to record yes it has um Dr. Gami is a pretty prolific guy um he has uh well he's currently the director of the mood disorder program and psychopharmacology consultation clinic at Tufts Medical Center he's where he's also a professor um, but, but he has such a huge, huge career in academics. He's written over a hundred scientific articles and written eight alt books as well, mainstream books, uh, including A First Rate Madness, with uncovering the links between leadership and mental illness, um, which I've read myself and, and made me that much more excited to be talking with him today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that caught my attention, uh, other than his works in his psychiatry letter um which is which is one of his sites that he um posts on and regularly blogs on so guys check it out we'll also put the link in the description um as well as his twitter feed that there's talks a lot about diagnosis and evidence and research around diagnosis which i think is pretty important to talk about mm-hmm I agree. I think that in in any field, you know, when we examine all the positives that come from it, such as all the patients like Monty and I have treated in our, our brief, you know, relatively brief mental health career as psychiatry residents, it's also that much more t- important to point out the, the downsides or the, the potential negatives, or at least have a conversation about it, which is which is the goal today, is to have that conversation, not necessarily representing the, the end-all truth, but a, an opposing view that gets us thinking about how we can best help the patients in front of us and and destigmatize the the whole field. Absolutely. And I think this comes at the crux of psych debates, um, allowing differing views and views that may perhaps uh, allow us to think of psychiatry differently and advance the field um, to be voiced and to have the conversations around them. So I think that's something that I really like about this episode. Absolutely. Um, so without further ado, then, shall we begin? Dr. Gami, we're so excited about having you on. Um, I, as I said before, and uh, me and Jonathan have kind of been wanting to have you on the podcast for some time, and so we're excited that you are on with us, and we're really excited to talk to you about a variety of topics, actually. What do you think, Jonathan? Indeed, indeed. There's, there's a, a lot of things that we could touch on. 
uh, oh, Dr. Gami has, has a very prolific career and has actually written several books, um, which we can, of course, link to here in the podcast uh, about a variety of topics. Uh, uh, so, <laughs> no, I'll, I'll keep the spoilers and just start the conversation from here. <laughs> Well, thanks for having me, guys. Pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. I, I want to start with something that I've come across, a word that I've come across that I wasn't as familiar with um, a year ago or maybe a year and a half ago, which is critical psychiatry. Um, can you tell us what critical psychiatry, what does that mean to you? Uh, well, um, I'm, I'm probably not the best person to define it since I'm, I'm an outsider to it myself. Um, but from what I've heard about it, I gather it's a, it's basically a branding. It's a, it's a brand for a group of psychiatrists who, as they're, uh, if it's a good brand, if the, if it, if it says what it seems like it means, I assume that they're critical of psychiatry in various ways, but they don't want to be seen as too critical of psychiatry. So they, they uh, have the word psychiatry in their brand. My understanding is that they're mostly psychiatrists who, um, they kind of want to differentiate themselves from the so older term, which I, I know you all have discussed from seeing what's been on your podcast, the anti-psychiatry concept, which is uh, sort of interpreted often as the view that the whole profession is illegitimate in some way and, and is, is, tends to be held by non-psychiatrists, although there are some uh, MD psychiatrists who have been sympathetic to the anti-psychiatry movement, such as Thomas Sass, but the critical psychiatrists are uh, trying to differentiate themselves from that view um, so that they're not saying psychiatry is completely illegitimate, but then they make many, many criticisms of psychiatry that are actually quite similar to what uh, the anti-psychiatry crowd had made in the past, in my view. So it sounds like then critical psychiatry is a less extreme version of anti-psychiatry and, and one that's more likely to be held by, like a, a view that's more likely to be held by psychiatrists themselves. Well, that's what they might say. Like I said, I'm not a good person to defend it because it'd be sort of like asking a capitalist to define communism. Uh, <laughs> fair I, enough. I don't really agree with them, so I'm not sure I could give them a fair, fair uh, description. But I don't think they are all that different than anti-psychiatry, to be honest. Hmm. I, 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 I like the contrast you drew, and I, I want to ask you about how would you tell us how you view them? What would be your, or rather, what would be your position in this? Um, scale or continuum if we're going to continue to use the political analogy um i think i think what characterizes critical psychiatry as well as anti so-called anti-psychiatry all these people is postmodernism. that they basically have a postmodernist modernist um or worldview or ideology philosophy whatever phrase you want to give for it they have a postmodernist way of thinking uh and that they do have that both consciously and unconsciously, in my view, um, because it, you know there's an old saying that everybody has a philosophy. They sometimes just don't know it, and so sometimes our our, our assumptions, our conceptual assumptions, are, are unconscious. In fact, many of them are. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm it's, I'm making a description of how all human beings are, but uh, part of what some people have have argued, um, like the philosopher Carl Jaspers, who I'm a I'm a big supporter of is that a lot of the work of philosophy, for instance, is just to make these conceptual assumptions conscious. Not that they're necessarily wrong immediately. They might turn out to be wrong, which you won't know unless you can make them conscious and then rationally judge them. Because otherwise, 
to continue the, the Freudian analogy in a way, you, you act out your unconscious assumptions and you just live them out. And I think that's what is happening with these so-called critical psychiatry and anti-psychiatry groups. They've basically imbibed the general culture's uh, postmodernist or uh, opinions. Um, it's a, a climate of opinion, as has been said. It's. Um, Can you explain what postmodern means? Um, yeah. It's, so basically, another phrase for it could be social constructionism, which you may have heard. It's basically the view that everything is relative to society's um, viewpoints. They use the phrase discourse. So they'll say, you know, in our culture, contemporary culture now in Western, um, say, Northeastern United States or Western Europe, um, there are certain beliefs A, B, and C. Now, these beliefs A, B, and C aren't true in any absolute sense. They're true for us. We believe in them. Uh, 100 years ago, we believed C, D, and E. And then 100 years from now, we're going to believe F, G, and H. So everything is relative to your country, your, your society, and your time. Uh, essentially, there's a relativism of truth so that nothing is really true in any absolute sense. Um, this way of thinking started in literature and then understanding literary criticism, but it's now extended to all aspects of knowledge, including medicine and science. So uh, in medicine, the first place where this kind of social constructionist critique was applied was psychiatry. And it was done so by the famous works of Michel Foucault in the 1950s, 60s, and others. There's a larger story to this, which has to do with postmodern philosophy, going back to Nietzsche, going into the First and Second World War, which uh, we can get to if you like. But in terms of what's relevant to psychiatry, Foucault really brought it in. And then it was followed in the 60s by all these critiques. Really, the counterculture of the 1960s was a postmodernist critique of traditional Western thinking, uh, so-called Enlightenment thinking. So in the Enlightenment thinking, there were absolute truths, which were attributed to reason and science, and some people would say religion. Um, but the postmodernists got rid of religion, famously, Nietzsche said, God is dead. And they also got rid of, of science and reason. And that's what's, um, I think, behind the um, hippies and the drugs and all that of the 1960s and 70s, which has now become mainstream. Marijuana's mainstream. Uh, a lot of the 60s views are mainstream. Anti-science views are mainstream, not only in the pre-pandemic vaccine uh, resistance, but obviously now in the pandemic vaccine resistance. And you see it not only in the right wing, but on the left wing, which shows you that it's a full-blown cultural phenomenon. And in psychiatry, it's this crowd that says, you know, diseases don't exist. Psychiatrists make things up. Uh, drugs are all harmful to you. And essentially, that a lot of these criticisms that are being made, they they have their rationalizations, but what's really driving it is this is this postmodernist, social constructionist, relativistic rejection of science. So, then, uh, when you're describing this, like this, uh, with the science as as I think I understood you saying that this is kind of this is the truth. Like there there is an actual truth, and that is what we've we've gathered through scientific evidence. Um, some people might argue that there is some level of interpretation to even like the studies that we have, like um, there maybe is bias in the study. And mm -hmm. so uh, how, how would you respond to that? Like maybe just poor study design concerns? Yes. I mean, so, you know, if, if, if I if I say that A is false, then people will assume I believe in Z and ignore B through Y. Um, and that's what the standard uh, perspective is of people who hold these social constructionist views. 
they'll say, oh, this guy must think that science is 100% true and that every time anyone does a little experiment with two mice, you know, that we all should worship that result. Uh, obviously not. Um, so, I mean, the critique is, has been made of what's so-called positivism, the view that science is that straightforward and about facts. Nobody claims that. Nobody's claimed that for 100 years. So when I say science, of course, it, it involves interpretation. Tell me something I don't know. No, fair enough. Uh, it makes sense that there is this kind of what we are all perceiving as what's what's on what's happening around us, what we take as truth, and that we have uh, something. What you're describing is we have this uh, you know, these studies that will uh, multiple studies that will come together and collectively suggest that there is this this truth out there, and they're all pointing to this. And we can't say that like okay, well. Uh, definitely 100% always that this is the truth, but, you know, and there's always going to be that like 0. 0.0000 repeating right. 1% is not true. But be when there's this preponderance of evidence, right. um, we can start to accept things as truthful. Yeah, exactly. It's not, unfortunately, it's, it's easy to set this up as zero versus 100, either absolute truth or, or you better be a postmodernist social constructionist. Um, ever since statistics became a science in the 18th century, and it's you know, been expanded into medicine only really in the 20th century, it's pretty obvious that most scientific truths are probabilistic and not absolute. But that doesn't mean that you're, you're able to believe whatever you want to. And it doesn't mean that those truths are simply relative to the society and the culture of the time. Um, so yeah, there are, you know, in the philosophy of science literature, you know, people talk about falsifiability, which you can definitely uh, falsify truth so you can know with certainty that something is not true and that's very important um, and there's also um, there's also inductive probability that you can know that certain things are true over an extended period of time uh, with the consensus of many many types of studies um, there will be one or two studies that don't support it it always is but that doesn't mean it's not true I mean, if you take that level of a standard, you're obviously not thinking in any, any realistically scientific way. But a lot of people will, will make those kinds of claims just to make a debating point uh, when they, when they want to continue to argue against the legitimate truth of anything. You know, for instance, just to make a, a, a simple example, um, you know, the law of gravity is true. Um, and you might have an experiment which might argue against it. But then you know, if you really don't believe in it, you're you really ought to consider then whether it's reasonable to jump off of a 50-floor building disbelieving in the law of gravity. Another simple example I like to use is if you take lithium, if you give lithium to somebody and give them a blood level of 5.8, you will harm their kidney. They'll probably get, they'll get acute renal failure. You may say, well, there's a 0.01% chance it won't happen. Okay, maybe, but uh, you take it then. See what happens to your kidney with lithium of 5.8. These, these are the kinds of things that are truths that, um, you know, we can sit around and argue in the English departments and in these, these little think tanks about uh, relativism and social constructionism of truths, um, but a lithium of 5.8 is hard to argue against. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm maybe playing a little devil's advocate here, just thinking about psychiatry is as a as a science and thinking about how we define disease and just looking at the references that we use now particularly the dsm having those um having those criteria integrated within diagnosis like social dysfunction 
uh, those are perhaps arbitrary based on societies um, that they are mm -hmm. happening in and and therefore that is a relativism of some sort that you are having yeah, a disorder absolutely. based on a relativistic con situation absolutely i mean that's not a devil's advocate that's that, that i would advocate that as well but the interesting thing about that is um, dsm uh let me just state this dsm is mostly false in my view and dsm itself is a social construction so what's really interesting is that the critics of psychiatry, whether they're anti-psychiatry or so-called critical psychiatry, have the same philosophy as the mainstream proponents of psychiatry. They're all, they're all subscribers unconsciously to this social constructionist cultural way of thinking. The DSM leaders have set up a system, you're absolutely right, that's just made up. And that's a, it's a legitimate criticism of them that, that a lot of the anti-psychiatry and other people make that it's made up. But the problem is the people that are criticizing them say everything's made up. So they're not criticizing it from a perspective that there's something true that's better. They don't believe in anything. Some might argue that social uh, corrective and social measurements are legitimate in psychiatry, that there are things that are relative because society and culture change and people change their behaviors. Well, this is a larger topic, um, and it gets at the question of whether um, of the, the standard of what's defined as abnormal. Um, and I can talk about that for a minute if you want, and then we can we can see where it goes. Um, generally speaking, DSM sets up its definition of quote unquote mental disorder as either having usually having both subjective distress and abnormal uh, occupational or social functioning. Now, neither of those uh, requirements are either medically or scientifically sound. So if you go to the rest of medicine, and we, we should analogize to the rest of medicine if we consider psychiatry at all, even in part, to be a medical discipline, which a lot of people reject, but for, for the purposes of this discussion, let's assume we accept that. In the rest of medicine, if you go by subjective distress, well, that's what leads to the opioid epidemic. That's what leads to... Um, hormone replacement therapy causing increased breast cancer rates. If you just go by symptoms, we already know in medicine that that's harmful. People do it, but it's not accepted as legitimate in general medicine. And then if you go by social functional impairment, well, there's no social and functional impairment to early stage cancer or to hypertension or to high cholesterol. There aren't even symptoms in those conditions. So not only do we not require subjective distress, we don't require any symptoms or any functional impairment to diagnose many legitimate medical diseases. Yet in psychiatry, we require severe subjective distress and severe functional impairment before we even allow anybody to get diagnosed with a few exceptions, but that's the majority of DSM definitions. That's an example of how DSM is unmedical and unscientific. No, oh, I, I see what you're getting at and I, I... Actually, I don't want to jump the gun and say I see what I'm, you're getting at, but it, what you describe reminds me of something I, I read in one of your uh, books um, describing uh, some of the mental disorders, such as dysthymia and cyclothymia, for example, as, as being like these, uh, you know, when we think of major depressive disorder, we think of, of several symptoms, at least five symptoms that are that are so distressful, they occur every single day. They prevent you from thinking and eating sometimes. And, and that's what it takes to get this disorder and get a medication. 
Whereas there's things like dysthymia, which, which is a much milder version of just this kind of chronic, long-lasting depression, as well as other like personality disorders or, or personality traits that might be on one level causing some level of dysfunction. Um, so, so I, I, I guess I'm, I'm saying a lot here, uh, <laughs> but, but my, my question kind of comes back to, um, uh, I wanted to get to is regarding the DSM, what do you feel like is a better alternative model compared to what we, we have? Well, um, there's a couple possibilities. One is to just uh, do what the rest of medicine does. There is no other discipline in medicine that has a DSM. There is no other specialty in medicine that allows its administrative professional organizational body in the United States to force you to define diagnoses their way uh, only. Nobody does that. It's not scientifically legitimate to do it. What they do is for some diagnoses, they will have research groups that will define them. For instance, migraine, epilepsy, they have criteria, high cholesterol, hypertension. The criteria are established by the researchers in those specialties, not by the administrative leadership of the American Academy of Neurology, who may not have done any research at all in epilepsy or, or migraine. But that's what happens in psychiatry. The leadership of the APA, the board of trustees, they have the last say. The APA assembly actually votes on the DSM. Most of them have no expertise at all in any of, of the disorders or the majority of the disorders that are in DSM. So that's one approach, which would be to uh, have researchers with expertise alone be the ones basing the decisions solely on research. Uh, this could be called the Research Diagnostic Criteria Approach, the RDC, because that's what those were in the 1970s. I've proposed this for now for current um, psychiatry. I've had a paper on this topic that's been rejected for about 10 years, multiple times in multiple journals, but I'll keep trying to publish it. So there's that approach. The other approach for the, and that doesn't have to be for all diagnoses. One might pick out, you know, a couple major ones to, to diagnose that way. Uh, and by the way, the big distinction between DSM and that RDC approach is that DSM does not require does not base its criteria primarily on scientific research. That's important to point out. DSM does not base its criteria primarily on scientific research. It's not even secondarily on scientific research. And in fact, the leader of DSM-4, who I believe you interviewed, admitted in the various um, debates with me on psychology today on and blogs and around the time the DSM-5 came out in 2013, he admitted this and he, he glorified it. He said, you know, it's great, we shouldn't do that. The science should be fourth or fifth on the list of the important criteria. The important criteria are what he called pragmatism, meaning what do the DSM leaders think is beneficial for society, the profession for patients. If there's a scientific study that shows that you should diagnose bipolar illness with two days of hypomania instead of four, which it does show, they reject it because they don't want more people diagnosed with that because they don't want more people treated with the drugs for it because the drugs cause side effects. See, these are the social constructionist utilitarian judgments that lead to a falsification of the actual diagnosis. And then that leads to um, in, invalid results when you do base the research on those diagnoses. That's part of the reason why we've had negative and useless results in research for the last 30, 40 years in biology, genetics, and pharmacology. And that's why DSM-5 was rejected by the NIMH for biological research. So my view is make the research the sole criteria. It'll work if you do that. But the APA has rejected that for the last 40 years and it continues to do so. Another option would be not, besides this for the other diagnoses, you know, there's 
300, 400, some diagnosed in DSM. There are not 300, 400 psychiatric conditions. So that in itself is clearly false. There's probably about a half dozen, maybe 10 psychiatric illnesses. And there are a number of other potential conditions that one might describe, but they don't need criteria. They can just be described by those who do research in the field or those who treat it the most in textbook form. That's what the rest of medicine does. So they might have criteria for a few diagnoses, but the rest of it, people just go to the cardiology textbook or they go to the infectious disease textbook and they read what the experts there write or the classic symptoms for X, Y, and Z. They don't need a professional organization to specify it in a huge amount of detail for them. It's, it's an interesting thought, and it's, it's so counter to what we learn, even in medical school, that there are potentially other ways to diagnose people other than using this handbook, essentially, as, as you're, you know, which well, you know, you're it's, absolutely it's, right. It's very totalitarian. It's, so, completely, it's completely anti-scientific in its ethos, because science is all about people having differing hypotheses, opinions, and then looking at it in a million different ways, and over time, finding out what's true. If you say, no, you can only think about things this one way, uh, that's not scientific at all. And, and um, for our listeners, and I'm, I'm by no means an expert on the DSM, but the, the DSM, I can at least say, has its roots in the early psychiatrists um, in, in the Western world, uh, and particularly those that practiced uh, psychoanalysis. And, and so that's where we get a lot of the, the, the roots, and it's changed as various iterations and various people have looked at it over the years and became a lot more standard in the DSM-3, um, which I believe came out in the 70s, if I'm if remember, remembering that right. 1980. 1980, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a good example of the fact that the, that's how the counterculture got into psychiatry, because the 1970s was when the counterculture started becoming part of the culture, and DSM-3 is a social constructionist document basically saying we're going to pragmatically make up diagnoses however we want. Yes, it's true that before then it was more psychoanalytic, as you say, the, the, the general definitions. But um, we went from defining things sort of psychoanalytically to defining them however we want, eclectically, I like to say. We basically um, literally make things up. It's, DSM is not a biological document, as a lot of people like to say. It's not a pharmacological approach. It's not a medical approach, as I just have shown. It's literally a postmodern approach, if you want to label it. It's a social constructionist approach. And um, what it really did was try to and what, what happened in the 70s was the psychoanalytic approach was weakening, the new drugs had come along, DSM and the biopsychosocial model, which we can talk about, were attempts to compromise between these two things, the drugs and psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, and basically create a place for people to do both or whatever they wanted, drugs if they wanted, psychotherapy if they wanted, or both. And by having this, this pragmatic approach, as they say, they people are allowed to do to take whatever approach they want to and um it's not science because science doesn't let you do whatever you want to science tells you what's right and what's wrong but um that's how it's evolved the third edition was the main one in 1980 there was a fourth edition in 1994 which hardly changed at all and a fifth edition in 2013 which hardly changed at all basically we're living in a groundhog day of 1980 and what was decided then has been imposed on the profession Diagnoses like major depressive disorder have not changed hardly at all since 1980. And in 1980, there was a little claim that they were based on some research. Well, 
if the you know the last 40 years of research is almost completely ignored in favor of the research from 1975 that's the way things are right now hmm. i think i think that's that's very a very interesting way of looking at diagnostic criteria i think i you know i want to second what jonathan said about the teaching that we receive from medical school to here I, I now, as I reflect, I think maybe there are those elements in other fields other than just psychiatry, um, like conventions that we change um, over time in order to update whatever diagnostic criteria we have. Um, I think the distinction you're trying to say here is that it's not based on research. And I think, would you say that there is no scientific data at all in the DSM? There's about 10%. And, I, and I, the reason I can quantify it for you is, is this. Remember, I mentioned that the research diagnostic criteria were based solely on research in the 1970s. And if you look them up in the study papers from the 70s, there's about 20 diagnoses in the research diagnostic criteria. Things like major depressive disorder, bipolar, panic disorder, borderline personality, schizophrenia, of course, schizoaffective, things like that. There's about 20. And um, that research was published uh, in 1978. In 1979, the, well, in the late 70s, the DSM-3 committees were meeting, and in 79-80, they came out with DSM-3. In that year or two, those 20 diagnoses were expanded to 292. So 270 diagnoses were added by the DSM-3 committees on top of the research diagnostic criteria which the research diagnostic criteria meant that's all we knew. That's what all the research showed. There were no other diagnoses that were legitimate based on research. And there's ways you can define what's legitimate, what's valid for diagnoses that has to do with genetic studies, core studies, biological markers, et cetera. So there was 20. So the other 270 were literally made up. Now the leaders defended that by saying that this is the consensus of the clinicians. This is what they think, things like, you know, dependent personality, avoidant personality, narcissistic personality, the various paraphilias, a gazillion other things. Clinicians use the phrases and they claimed, well, at least we can operationalize it. And then over time, we'll find out if they're more valid or not. And then if they're not, we can take them out. Well, they've never taken them out. So it went from 292 in 1980 to 360 in 1994 to 390 some now, but only about 10 or 20 have actually ever been validated. So when I say it's false, just divide 400 by 10 or 20, and that's the percentage of DSM that's false. Sure. Oh, it, it makes, you know, it, it also just describing it in that way reminds me of something I've heard some other psychiatry residents and attendings mention, and that we do have more research these days. And uh, for, for example, I wonder if you agree, like the bipolarity index is a tool that we sometimes use to help us diagnose bipolar disorder uh, based on more than just the, the history. Um, but but a, a set series of uh, criteria um, or other criteria that's more research based. Um, do you feel like maybe a, a proper way going forward is to because we already have this system to use both of them, or would we completely switch to this research based system like overnight? There is there is no justification for DSM. People will say we need it for billing codes. We'll get, do something else for billing codes. It's, that's, an, that's a bureaucratic issue. Bureaucrats can fix it. We could just use ICD codes for billing codes. We don't need to use DSM codes. We used to just use ICD codes, in fact. Um, the DSM provides about two thirds of the budget of the APA. That's its main justification. 
They sell millions and millions. The number one selling psychiatry book on Amazon is DSM. And it's always like that because clinicians feel forced to use it to teach, but also to practice. They fear that if they don't practice that way, they'll, uh, among other things, they'll be at, at legal jeopardy for lawsuits. So um, basically it's an enforced um, sales of something that the APA needs. Part of the reason the APA revises DSM every 10 years or so is that they, they need a new, they need to, to sell a bunch of books again. It's not driven by any research issues or scientific issues. In fact, they shouldn't wait 10 years to, to revise. Science doesn't go that slowly. They should be revising every month or two. Of course, they can't because it's an administrative thing. You know, one thing to mention is that the APA budget until 10, 15, 20 years ago was dependent a lot on the pharmaceutical industry, but they were criticized for that. So they've taken that out. There's no pharmaceutical contributions to the APA. Now it's almost completely dependent on DSM and they already have very high dues. They don't want to increase their dues. So this is, a, it's, this is a, what I'm providing you now is a social constructionist critique of why DSM exists, an economic financial critique. That's not the sole reason. I'm not that much of a social constructionist. And when I criticize postmodernism, I don't mean at all that it's 100% false. It's totally legitimate in lots of ways, but it's not as legitimate as they think it is, those who support it completely. Um, but anyway, I, I think that there's no real justification for DSM uh, scientifically or clinically. It's really being driven by financial and economic considerations, partly, and by administrative ones. And those can all be fixed in other ways. Um, so I would just get rid of it completely and we would be fine. Trust me, um, you know, every single discipline in medicine does fine. Psychiatrists with our inferiority complex don't seem to think that we can make diagnoses without a DSM. Why not? Yeah, no, I, I have a I have a few few reflections on that. Uh, um, I think with the DSM, the in reference to the billing of the with the ICD codes, I do I do see that brought up quite a bit. I I I and also find it. This is maybe a different point. I find it difficult to see how I can use the RDoC, which I think you were referring to, if I'm not mistaken. No, I'm uh, not referring to that which rdc it's a different thing like i said i've been my paper on this has been rejected for a decade so that's why no one knows about it which gets to you know the the mainstream academic psychiatry just being so resistant to the, uh, these newer ideas rdoc research domain criteria was created by the nimh in 20 around 2013 when dsm-5 came out as their alternative for dsm-5 like i said they admitted to their credit that dsm-3 4 and now 5 was useless for research and they didn't want to continue using it. You know, it used to be, in the, and this gets again to the social constructionism here, you could not get grants for research funding from the NIMH in the 1980s onwards, unless you used DSM criteria. Now from 2013 onwards, you can't get grants for the NIMH for most studies. If you do use DSM criteria, you have to not use DSM criteria, which again goes to show you how this is being driven by power, who has economic power, what you makes, it makes people do what they do. The NIMH now requires people to use their own criteria, which they created, the RDOC criteria. RDOC is not, R, is not what I'm talking about. Let me just explain this. When I say research diagnostic criteria from the 1970s, these were clinical studies. So they would do studies on patient signs and symptoms and compare them to their genetics, their course of illness, 
um, biological, biological markers if they had them, which mostly they didn't, um, but mostly genetics and course of illness and see if they broke out, if the symptoms were different in different groups of people. So for instance, let me give you an analogy. In medicine, you don't say if you have a cough, you have a cough disorder. And if you have fever, you have a fever disorder. You know you can have cough and fever with pneumonia X and pneumonia Y or with uh, a different infectious disease Z. And how do you tell that the cough and fever symptoms reflect different diagnoses? Well, you don't tell based on the symptoms themselves. You have to have some other source of evidence. It could be the pathology, which is of course ideal in medicine, which we don't have, but it could also be the course of the illness. Is it episodic? When did it start? Was it after you went here or there? And also in some conditions, genetics. So in psychiatry, we have to rely on non-symptom-based uh, sources of evidence, which are genetics and, and course of illness, to say that the same symptom, anxiety, might occur in different diseases, as opposed to claiming it's the same disease. And also the different symptoms, anxiety and you know, insomnia, might actually reflect the same disease, as opposed to being different diseases. So symptoms themselves are not enough to either say that it's one illness or multiple. That's the point. Now, DSM is nothing but symptoms, yet its validity to the extent it exists for that 10% that's been proven valid is based on course and diagnostic and, and genetics, which are non-symptom validators or biological markers if you have it. So um, the, 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 the issue then is, that RDOC is trying to go away from these clinical research validators, genetics and course of illness, looking at signs and symptoms, clinical symptoms, but relating them to genetics and course of illness. It says, forget all the, the signs and symptoms, forget the genetics and forget the course of illness. The only thing that matters is if your neuroimaging lights up in the frontal lobe here when you do task Y, or in the occipital, the occipital lobe there when you do task Z. So it's basically neuroimaging based. And, um, and they have uh, cognitive aspects like externalization, internalization, and anxiety and mood. Those are their big, big cognitive clinical constructs that they then look at through neuroimaging-based distinctions and sometimes genetic-based distinctions. But for instance, they don't care if you have panic attacks versus general anxiety. They don't care if you have depressive mood versus manic mood. They don't care if you have delusion of grandeur versus hallucinations that are auditory. All those clinical features are irrelevant to RDOC. It's not assessing that. It's, putting, it's basically saying that clinical research has failed because DSM failed. And let's go on just to biological research. I'd like to, if you could tell us a little bit about RDC, we'd love to hear about it. Um, just the gist of it. No, I mean, it's, it's not proprietary. It, it, okay. on, honestly, there's nothing special. It's just, <laughs> Say what I just told you, which is take clinical signs and symptoms and then look at what the evidence is for diagnosis, right. them being different from so each other. So what would be those like major diagnoses you would have in RDC? Um, I would say based on the current, based on the prior RDC of the 70s and building on that, it would be uh, schizophrenia, of course, obviously is one big diagnosis, manic depressive illness, and I'm on purpose, not saying bipolar disorder, quote unquote, which is a different thing than manic depressive illness. Manic depressive illness meant recurrent manic or depressive episodes. So it would include what we now call bipolar, but also recurrent severe depression, or what people call so-called MDD part of it. So 
uh, schizophrenia, manic depressive illness, obsessive compulsive disease, if it was distinct from those two, sometimes it's actually caused by those two. Um, autism, um, the range of substance abuse, obviously alcoholism and other types of substance abuse. Um, I'd be hard pressed to name many more, but there might be two or three others. If you just base diagnostic definitions on clinical research showing that these symptoms can be validly differentiated from other symptoms based on the course of illness, genetics, and biological markers, you have about a half dozen conditions and that's it. Other psychiatric uh, syndromes exist like post-traumatic stress, maybe borderline personality, antisocial personality, but they're not diseases. They are valid diagnostic constructs in that you can differentiate them from other diagnoses based on not just the symptoms, but course of illness, not usually genetics, um, but they're not diseases because they're not caused by abnormalities of the brain or body uh, as their primary cause. But they're also valid constructs, so I would include them as I well. I think that's a but really interesting point that you mentioned that, that, so what would you not include I'm just curious, uh, psychological illnesses as part of- uh, Like what? Would, I wouldn't include narcissistic personality dependent. No, it's all been disproven. It's not my, it's not my choice to in, include it or not. These are all, some of them have either, what I would not include are either things that have not been proven or things that have been disproven. In the case of per narcissistic, for instance, it's been disproven, it's not legitimately dif differentiated from other diagnoses. So all the other personality disorders I would throw out and everything else that's in DSM. So I guess when uh, hearing a lot of this, I have to admit, you know, I, I agree and understand a lot of it. And some of it is provoking some defensiveness within myself. <laughs> I feel I'm in trying the counter-transference. I'm trying to. So, you have to. I don't, you, know what I've, you know what I've learned is if you don't provoke people, they don't listen. Interesting. <laughs> you definitely and, have my attention. <laughs> yeah, you you, you, have, you won't really engage unless you're provoked, and you're gonna provoke. You, you know, if if you're you know no, because everything you're taught, you know, there's an old saying: half of what you're taught is true and half is false. You just don't know which half. And uh, so you're taught a lot of stuff that's false. Half the stuff you guys are learning, probably more, in your residency is false. It's nobody's fault. That's the way medicine is. It, but it, when you take science seriously, you're okay with that. You're like, you know, things get falsified. I mean, take that seriously. That means a lot of what you think is true will turn out not to be true. And of course, you're not going to experience that as a positive thing, as a pleasant thing. You, and that's where the defensiveness comes in or the reaction. So that's normal. That's good. And I think it's also partly, not to jump here on Jonathan's comment, like trying to defend the care of mental health because I feel like there's a lot of stigma around it already. And so adding additional questions, although appropriate for somebody who's looking at this in a nuanced way may seem to an outsider like, oh, they're basing their thing on nothing. 90% of it's fake. Um, that people would look at psychiatry in a less serious way because of these criticisms was the question. But, but you know, that's what the critical psychiatry, getting back to your original comment, that's what critical psychiatry people are doing and, and they are criticizing psychiatry. And that's, that's one um, problem as a result of that. But the difference I think between what I'm doing and what they're doing is I think there actually are true things. This is actually what the reason that I'm unhappy about all this. And I should tell you, you know, I'm, in my 50s, I've spent 25 years in the profession. I didn't think any of this 10 years ago, and certainly not 20 years ago, and not when I was a resident, and like you guys. I had complete faith 
that the profession knew what it was doing. And I've been rather disillusioned, especially with DSM-5 to learn what DSM is all about. So the difference is that I think there are truths and we should be getting at them and we would have a great profession that could help tons of people if we dealt with it in a truly scientific way. And it's such a shame to be going down this other road that's been proven um, um, ineffective and harmful for 40 years and, and still not realize it. That's where I'm coming from. And that's very different from other people who just criticize psychiatry for the sake of criticizing psychiatry. No, and, and it completely makes sense, especially like when you bring up the example, which I appreciate earlier of bipolar disorder, the criteria that we have is not reflective of what we actually see. And I've seen that clinically, you know, we all have examples of disorders that you know, people show up and they just don't fit nicely into the diagnostic criteria um, that we currently have. Um, it, I, it does make me wonder, though, like the, the practicality aspect of this that you were mentioning of the DSM-5 and the argument for that, because, you know, whether it's right or wrong, now that we have these decades of research that use the, the diagnostic criteria in the DSM-5, that says that, okay, well, if you have MDD, major depressive disorder, it responds to this medicine because of this trial that used the DSM-5's information. Does, does that not give enough traction for us to continue using the DSM-5, at least for now, while we're still getting more research about, like, other scientific... I, I don't know, Jonathan. You know, the way I often think about this, and I can answer with a little metaphor, is, um, you know... The, I was those the people in my generation were young young men when um, the Cold War ended in the late '80s, early '90s, and it would be similar around that time. Just saying, you know what? Socialism's been around in the Soviet Union for 70 years. Yeah, it's got some problems. Can we just continue with that while we try to find something better? You know, I don't really know what the right answer is here, um, because I can say, like, you know, even even if the argument is, well, people are going to use the wrong medicines more often if they throw out the diet, the DSM-5. Like, you know, people are going to give antipsychotics for depression, like unipolar depression uh, as monotherapy. You know, people already do that. <laughs> I was going to say, we can't do much worse than we're doing now. I mean. That's true. That's true. So, you know, I've, I've certainly seen that so many times off, you know, in, in the community patients coming to the hospital on these medicines. Um, but but that is definitely like my biggest fear that that would get worse. Um, but but yeah, I, I have to admit I don't, it's an unfounded fear. It's certainly not based on science. Um, and I don't. Have no, I mean, if if you have an unscientific diagnostic system, you're not harmed by getting rid of it, and it, it's not doing much good. Um, I don't know. I guess I have um, a lot. I have a lot of faith in the average clinician and the average patient. DSM has no faith in them. I've talked to the leaders of DSM about this. They say they don't, they don't trust clinicians to make the right decisions. That's why they're forcing them to do it by using these DSM criteria. And they're also forcing them you know, with these treatment guidelines and such. This is all against the whole tradition of medicine. This is not, an, you know, outside of psychiatry, this is where our, our colleagues also make the same complaint, complaints. You, met, you don't go to four years of medical school, four years of residency to be told what to do by the APA Board of Trustees. That's not right. You have lots of education. You have lots of experience. You're going to make mistakes. That's okay. That happens. And you learn from your mistakes. But most clinicians um, you know, want to help their patients. And by the way, patients aren't stupid either. They know when they're not doing well, and they'll change, change from their doctor or not take the medication. Non-adherence is not always a bad thing. 
you know, almost, I do a lot of consultations. I've probably treated over 10,000 patients in 20 years. I do lots and lots of consults. My consults are patients. It's not the doctors who send the patients to me. It's the patients who come to me and say, I'm not getting better by my doctor's treatments. Can you give me some other ideas? So, you know, people will seek help and, um, and they'll do better. And I don't, I, I, have a, I have a lot of faith in the profession. I don't have faith in the leadership of the profession or in the academics of the profession. I have faith in the clinicians and they don't have faith in themselves because they've been beaten down for 40 years and told they don't know what to do and they need to follow this book. Um, but if we actually let them you know, use their clinical judgment and we educated them better, which DSM, by the way, is a terrible way of educating people, they would be even better. And I would ask you to consider this, this experiment. It's harder to do these days because uh, everything's digital. But um, in the old days, you used to be able to go in the library and pull out the old stacks of journals. You can still do this if you ask your, your librarian to give you like the archives of general psychiatry from 1973 or 1965 or even 1977, 78, just before DSM. Read those articles and see if you find any of them useful to you. You will find that the vast majority are pretty useless. Well, if you go back and read stuff from the 80s, you won't find they're much better. And the 90s, well, some are okay, some are still not much better. And I think when 20 or 30 or 40 years from now, people go back and read all this DSM-based research that's coming out these days, they're not gonna find it very useful. So I don't have fear about giving up those studies and the, those data. The fact is, you know, we're, you know we, when we switched from psychoanalysis to the DSM type approach, we, get, you know, we automatically made the vast majority of the psychiatric literature useless to us. And the same thing's gonna happen when DSM ends, which it will. The real thing is, is if we can get into a scientific mindset, that won't happen. When you're really using scientific methods that are widely accepted, not just specific to what the psychiatric profession believes at that time, but that are widely accepted in all of medicine, then you can really build on it and that's how a discipline progresses and grows and gets better. And that has not happened in psychiatry, unlike most of the rest of medicine, contrary to what everyone wants to believe and all the, all the triumphalistic hoopla, we have not really done very well in the last 40 years. We've more or less stood still. Um, if you look at all of our most effective drugs, they were developed before DSM-3 in the 1970s. The most effective drugs, ECT, tricyclics, clozapine, lithium. So we have not really progressed anywhere near as much as people think. And uh, we would have much more progress if we gave up DSM, gave up this kind of social constructionist belief system and focused on scientific methods properly understood and putting that first and foremost and, and just doing that. And that's, in a way, it's not hard to do. It's only hard for psychiatry because we've never really bought into that to begin with. And I think, um... I think it's also hard in psychiatry because I think what makes it unique in medicine is that there are things that are subjective that very much are within the realm of the science of psychiatry that don't fit very neatly in my per from my perspective in the typical uh, EBM randomized clinical trial framework. Unfortunately, at this time, just thinking about psychotherapies of certain types, not really fitting well in those models. Um, and just wanted to wanted to 
kind of reflect on that and think about that because I think it, it makes psychiatry unique. And I think, do we, do we, yeah. do we medicalize? Do we completely switch over and say, well, you know, uh, again, the you're, doing, you're doing the zero to 100 thing. That's a straw right. man. So, you know, the, here's the issue there. Obviously psychiatry is unique, but the, are we 0% medical? All I'm saying is we ought to be medical to the extent that we should be medical and we're not medical at all. DSM is completely anti-medical, as, as we just discussed. I mean, so, I think you're doing the zero to 100 because you said earlier that it was 10%. So there are some things in it. Yeah, that but are... even that 10% is weak. For instance, okay. the, the, <laughs> the bipolar is not diagnosed correctly. The MDD is not diagnosed correctly. Right. So right. It, it, but, and it's what my point, you know, yeah, okay, I'll give you that. I'm, I'll give you the 10%. But, right. you know, this, this is a common problem. You know, I'm not, you can interpret it. What I'm saying is, oh, he's a biological reductionist. He wants to make a completely medical model. That's 100% going from zero to 100. I but don't think we, I was we trying agreed to say that. that mm -hmm. We agreed that schizophrenia, manic depressive illness, for instance, just to pick those two out, are biological diseases. Let me just say that if people mm -hmm. agree with me on that, then clearly there you can apply the medical model for those two things. I'm not saying everything in the world, but we are not even doing it really well for those two things. That's, that's where I'm going to start, but I agree with you outside of that. You know, my, my approach to psychiatry is a medical humanistic approach. This is a tradition that goes back to William Osler in the 19th century in medicine. That is, you are biologically reductionistic where it's legitimate to be biologically reductionistic. Like if someone has an infectious disease, if someone has a genetic disease, like schizophrenia, manic depression, they're both completely genetic. When you are not biologically reductionistic, where it's not legitimate to be biologically reductionistic, uh, such as, for instance, um, a PTSD type situation where it's an environmental trauma or divorce or life stage problems like midlife crisis, adolescent crises. Um, that's certainly a different thing than the rest of medicine. And that's where the psychological and psychotherapeutic aspects of psychiatry are very important. But we don't make these distinctions in psychiatry. What we say is everything is biopsychosocial. So do whatever you want to. All is permitted, nothing is forbidden. And then people just are eclectic and they do whatever they want. Or we say everything is pragmatic. So those diseases, I'm going to define the way will give me the most reimbursement, the least use of drugs I don't like. And all of that is illegitimate. That's tinkering with the truth. And when you tinker with the truth, you're not going to get the truth, whether you're doing research or treating patients. And that's how things don't turn out as well as they could. And I think there are conventions in medicine as well, to be fair to psychiatry, that are based off those economic and financial things that there are certain cutoffs like for you know not to not to get into a realm of things i'm not i'm not very expert at but certain diagnostic criteria like the diabetes cutoff or the hypertension cutoff could it have been higher could have research supported that and i think those have changed over time even the treatment guidelines yeah in but they are very it'd different be, it'd be hard to i'd like to see the evidence that those decisions were based on financial considerations Right. Even even in the UK, you know, if you think about the well, yeah. the, the NIA, the NHS, I believe um, they have different they have differing criterias and different algorithms for treating the same problems because That's there true. are different financial constraints. They, on they do system. have it based on based on what they would treat people based on budgetary consideration. But that's different than the diagnosis. See, it's, it's fine for the UK to say we're only going to treat hypertension if the Systolic blood pressure is 90 and above, let's say, because that's all we got money for. 
but what the APA is saying, it's not hypertension if it's less than 90 because of these financial or other economic considerations. That's a very different issue. Uh, don't mix up diagnosis and treatment. Yes, financial and economic considerations are relevant for treatment. I'm just saying it's not legitimate for diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. And I think diagnosis and treatment kind of fit within the realm of like scientific inquiry within that specialty. Um, but I agree with you 100 percent. It is it is different, the diagnostic criteria. And I don't <laughs> I don't want to speak on something here that I'm not the expert at. But I just I'm just thinking and reflecting on my brief experience with medicine. I think I think I, I kind of like Jonathan's earlier comment about traction. And I totally agree with you, Dr. Gamey, about like needing updated criteria for schizophrenia that fit more with the research as opposed to having the same criteria represented for the last, you know, since the 70s, 100%. Yeah. I mean, some things are really low-hanging fruit. For instance, it's very well established that in schizophrenia, there's um, ventricular enlargement, right? Why is that not one of the diagnostic criteria for schizophrenia? Because the DSM refuses to have any biological uh, criterion for a psychiatric disease on con conceptual grounds, not on scientific grounds, just in principle. All right. I, um, I, I see the time we've reached. And so, <laughs> well, I, I, I'm enjoying this lively discussion. It might be the most debatiest of our psych debates <laughs> podcast, by the way. <laughs> I, I, I think we I probably ought to start. Yeah, yeah. We, we probably ought to start getting towards closure. And so, so Dr. Gami, is, is there any final words you'd like to leave us with? Oh, that's always a hard question, Jonathan, final words. Uh, I mean, not really. I, 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 I suppose if I was a listener... And I might put myself in the shoes of the listener. Um, you know, I think these discussions are always useful uh, in terms of bringing out ideas, um, but they are um, never sufficient. So the thing to do is to use them as um, reasons to explore the matter further, to kind of Absolutely. read more, look into more sources, get into it more, not view this. It's, you're not going to solve any problem in an hour or many hours, um, but it, it should be a way to, for people to get interested in the topic and study it more. Wonderful. I think that's, that's kind of, that's the hope in general is we get more people talking about mental illness um, with this podcast, I mean. And so I, I am, I'm so happy we were able to talk about this and get these, you know, start the discussions and, and hopefully change will come. That's in the, in the right direction.